Welcome to the Professor and the Hack, episode 139. The year is nearly over, Professor Peter Van Onselen. Gladly so, Hugh. I mean, it's it's been a, it's been a long year. Having having it was the same, obviously, three years ago in 2019. But having an election in the first half of the year, not to mention this year having a second budget in the second half of the year, in in a political sense, quite apart from everything else that's been going on this year, uh, it has been a particularly busy year. It has been two budgets, as you say, a total shift in the polity of the nation, a new government. The year ends for Anthony Albanese as well as he could ever have dreamt in many ways. He's not only prime minister, which seemed unlikely at his career at various times, but he has ended with his opinion polling numbers at the highest for the year, as preferred prime minister at the highest for the year. He's kept his promises on key things like industrial relations reform, which is supposed to be pushing wages along, but also, you know, the the Integrity Commission, etc. He's working on a promise that he will inevitably break, and that is the reduction in people's power prices. But that is going on as we speak, as they try to uh, get together with the states, some sort of a thing, which, in the words of the treasurer, is no longer designed to bring down prior prices, but to take some of the sting out of the price rises that are coming. Overall, will Albanese feel as if this is uh, where he wants to be? Well, look, in in some respects, all he can do is do well in the moment, uh, as long as he has sufficient planning for for what comes next in the future, which matters electorally, obviously, because he faces the people in in a little over two years' time, potentially. But all he can do is is do well day-to-day, week-to-week, as long as there is that forward planning as part of that. And he's clearly done that. The only thing I'd say, and, I, and I'm sure that Labor hardheads are, are already thinking about this, is that they will be well aware that popularity can fade very, very quickly. I mean, Scott Morrison's popularity in the early stages of the pandemic was super high, uh, having been super low not that long before because of the bushfires and then receding again as there were problems during the latter stages of the pandemic. Kevin Rudd, you know, became more popular within his first term as Prime Minister in that first year or so than Bob Hawke ever was during a much longer serving as Prime Minister, as a Labor Prime Minister. But ultimately, he didn't even get to the election. Uh, His colleagues decided to roll in when his popularity fell away, and it hadn't even fallen away that much, quite frankly, when they removed him. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen to Anthony Albanese, but I do think as a figure who lived through in Parliament at a very senior level, lived through those Rudd years, but also was a staffer who saw firsthand what happened during the Hawke period as well. And then obviously as the opposition leader who took advantage of circumstances and also helped conspire circumstances against Scott Morrison, I think he would be well aware that he'll absolutely take it, Hugh. The high popularity that he's ended on, the achievements that he's made, the benchmarks that he's set, he'll take it. And why wouldn't he? So it's a good news story for him. But he will certainly be aware of the sort of things that you mentioned that are on the horizon that could bring that popularity down. If he can't get the energy settings where he wants them, if international economic events as well as other events take hold, if interest rate rises persist in the first half of next year, there's plenty of ifs and buts there that he has to worry about. Uh, He's got the benefit of Peter Dutton, who's an unpopular alternative, but he won't take that, I would assume, complacently for the very reasons, again, his lived experience, Hugh, watching Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, for that matter, in a sense, be complacent about Tony Abbott because they thought he was too unpopular to ever become prime minister. Ultimately, 
he vanquished Rudd and thoroughly so in 2013. So he will be aware that Peter Dutton is unpopular, but could be the right person politically in a brutal environment to take advantage of a brutal economic environment as well. So it will be a good end to the year for Albo. He will be happy with where he's at personally uh, and electorally and, and in terms of his popularity. But, but he, I, I, I don't think he'll be complacent about it uh, for the lived experience of what he knows has happened before. How much do you think power prices are going to play into 2023, not just because in an environment where people's mortgages and their rents, their cost of living is so high and tight, certainly there's, as we know, at least 25% of the population are really feeling the squeeze at the moment. Mm. So there's the financial element of rising power prices but the political element that they'll, people feel as if they've been dotted by a broken promise. Yeah, I think that'll be a factor. And clearly the opposition does too, because in question time over the last X number of weeks and months, that has been their focus, you know, notwithstanding other moving parts in the economy or in the political setting, they keep returning to this pledge to bring down energy prices. Where is it? Why hasn't it happened? And as you point out, it's unlikely to, to ever really happen. The best you can kind of hope for is some sort of longitudinal adjustment that makes things not as bad as they could have been, which will still be classified as a broken promise. Yeah, but, well, I mean, people, people don't feel, this is the dilemma, but if people don't feel any, any personal benefit from the higher rise, which didn't come when their power prices are going up anyway. And in fact, all the way back, you know, Wayne Swan used to lament the fact that, um, you know, in saving people from a deep recession at the time of the global financial crisis over a decade ago, that um, people immediately complain about the <laughs> complain about things that they didn't get. They're not aware of the things that they did get. So I just don't see that even if they can somehow ameliorate power price rises, they'll get much political gain out of that. There's more negative for them. Yeah, I think that's right. You can't prove a negative. That was always the problem for Scott Morrison trying to say, we saved you from the worst of what the pandemic could have delivered. It was the problem, as you point out, for Wayne Swan. We saved you from the worst that the global financial crisis could have delivered. If Anthony Albanese walks around saying, we made your power bills more affordable, even though they continue to, to go up, skyrocket even, but not as much as they could or, or should have otherwise, people aren't going to give him any credit for that. Politicians shouldn't make stupid promises. And his power price reduction promise was a stupid promise. Now, he's not the first politician to make a dumb commitment that he won't be able to meet. And he certainly won't, and he won't be the last either, but he has fallen foul of that, even though he managed to, by and large, keep a relatively small target strategy intact through the last election campaign. But I think energy prices, Hugh, are going to be one part of, of broader challenges in 2023 that, that are unavoidable for Labor because their best hope is some sort of relatively soft landing through the mix of a potential economic downturn versus the concerns of ongoing high inflation, which can't be brought under control with rising interest rates. Their best case scenario is that things are still, if I could put it this way, a bit shit, but it's not a complete disaster where things fall apart. Because whatever way you slice it, interest rates are expected to go up three or four times in the first half of next year. The Reserve Bank doesn't meet in January, but from February on, they're expected to. Uh, that'll see roughly another 1% increase in interest rates, which will be passed on by the bank beyond the cash rate. So, you know, mortgage holders, it'll be passed on to, to those who rent. It'll be tough for businesses, which we often forget have loans as well, uh, which will go up as a result of these changes. Now, that, that's all tough, right? 
we're lucky that we've got low unemployment at the moment, but does that persist? And if the interest rate rises, Hugh, do their job, they'll slow the economy, which will probably put upward pressure on unemployment. And if you slow the economy, it probably makes things tougher for business and has all sorts of flow-on effects. Now, that's if they're lucky. (laughs) If they're lucky, they'll slow the place down, which causes economic hardship. If they're unlucky, they'll cause the economic hardship from the rise in interest rates without slowing inflation, which will only make cost of living even more diabolical for people. So my point is, there's no good outcome in 2023, but the lesser of evils is that they somehow navigate their way through those two you know, black and white options to a relatively soft landing where they slow things down enough that interest rate rises and inflation can be brought a little bit under control, but not so much that they tank the economy yeah, and the unemployment rate, rate rises as a consequence and business investment slows too much. That's their best case scenario, but it's still not the kind of scenario that people run around high-fiving each other saying, what a bang-up job the government have done. It's, it, it, it's, it's still tough, right? And, and that's a, a consequence of them governing in tough times. Yes, it's interesting when they get to the uh, budget next year, I think there is that risk is that that'll be heading off at the start of, it'll go back to the normal budget cycle. So it'll be heading into autumn. People will be starting, particularly in the Southern states, towards looking towards their heaters. Interest rates, as you say, will be continuing to rise. Uh, The budget deficits will still be deep and long. Any reforms are likely to be painful or perhaps shelved for the time being. And this, I I suspect, will be the time when they really discover that uh, governing is uh, not a bed of roses. And at that stage, the ability to say blame the war in Ukraine and to blame the previous government will start to sound a little bit old. And uh, I think next year, the Labour government is going to earn their pay, you know, politically and, uh, and in every other sense. Mm. I think by and large, and this is borne out, I think, on the polling we've seen so far, there is a sense generally in the public that they're pretty competent, that they've passed those competency tests earlier on. Yeah, I agree with that. And so that makes it a bit difficult for Peter Dutton to flash up there and say, look, this, this mob haven't got a clue what they're doing. We'll do it better. So I don't think that, that part of the wheel has turned, you know. No, I, I agree it hasn't. But, but it could, right? Because I think there was that same view that there was a competency around Kevin Rudd et al. when they took over. And I, I'm not even necessarily sure that there wasn't a competency by the time the perception that there wasn't set in. But the hard work from Abbott and others to try to unpick the perception of them being competent ended up taking hold. Now, Peter Dutton, in a sense, is starting earlier on that because he's taken over immediately. Brendan Nelson and and Malcolm Turnbull as opposition leaders never achieved that against Rudd. Now, that might work in his favour because he starts the ball rolling earlier, or it might be white noise that sort of, in a sense, goes a little bit to what you're saying as well, Hugh, that it, it just sounds like white noise and that when he keeps saying it over and over again, people start to think that he's just a naysayer rather than a deliverer of truth when he attacks their competence. So it'll be, it will be interesting to see. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, w- I was reporting out of Canberra at that time when Rudd, I think, the paint came off when he couldn't get through his carbon pollution reduction scheme, the, the initial version of pricing carbon, and then Copenhagen you know, went to the Copenhagen summit, which was theoretically going to bring all the government's of the world together, all united in, in a belief that this is a way forward. And as he famously said, the whole exercise was 
I'm going to use disrupted rather than the phrase that was used by the Chinese. <laughs> and he had to come back with essentially nothing. And at that point, he was vulnerable to the attack from Abbott, which Abbott still running at that stage and being able to run successfully, almost a variation of the notion that uh, global warming was a hoax. And Rudd never survived internally. He, he never recovered internally uh, or externally as well. Particularly because he balked, yeah. don't you reckon? Like, I mean, we've yeah. talked about this before, but he shelved it. He he could have gone to a double disillusion election. He shelved the scheme. He didn't decide to take it to the people. And the one thing that a lot of people, and I include myself in this, I I, I thought Kevin Rudd was full of it from the get go. So I was certainly never a believer uh, in what he was selling. I just thought that his timing was right and his generational change was right in the wake of you know so many years of Howard. However, the one thing I did believe that he believed in was the climate change action, you know? And the fact that he ultimately shelved it and squibbed it, I can see why he thought that was the right political call, even though it wasn't, as it turns out. But it certainly made me doubt that it was, in his eyes at least, to quote him, the greatest moral challenge of our time. Because if it was the greatest moral challenge of our time, as he'd described it, how the hell can you not have the guts to take it to a double disillusion election to do something substantive? Yeah. Um, and he squibbed it. And I guess the question for um, for Dutton and and those who followed the coalition is, is there an equivalent bear trap waiting for Albanese in the next uh, six to 12 months that will give uh, a Dutton opposition that kind of opportunity to suddenly come from nowhere and, and, and belt down a, a, you know, a popular at the moment government? Can I ask you something about Peter Dutton just briefly? So he he's there, he's leader. He doesn't enjoy the leadership rules that incumbent Liberal leaders enjoy when Scott Morrison changed those rules so that it was almost impossible to remove a Prime Minister. That doesn't apply to the Liberal Party in opposition. Uh, it does apply to Labor, both in opposition and in government. And in a sense, that protected both Anthony Albanese in some of the lower periods when he was leader, and certainly Bill Shorten as well, across his six years when he was opposition leader. It doesn't apply to Peter Dutton. But having said that, as unpopular as he is, and without the protection of those leadership rules, there, there really aren't any alternatives. Josh Frydenberg's not in the parliament. Angus Taylor's not up to the task. No one. As you say, no one. What, like, what, what happens on that front? Yeah, look at the seniors on the Liberal Party bench. Angus Taylor plainly has to be counted among those. He's a shadow treasurer. Karen Andrews is the other one, I suppose, that you would say has prominence, has held a major role, you know, would be a radical departure. She is, of course, a woman. Paul Fletch is the manager of opposition business, but he looks like he's had a personality bypass. You know, he needs to really find something on that front, some charisma, for God's sakes. You know, the funny thing about Fletcher is that he is privately can be very witty and funny and these sorts yeah, of well, things. Yeah, yeah, and he can. won <laughs> a highly contested pre-selection battle for the seat of Bradfield when he, you know, he charmed and, and won over, uh, I think there were 17 people going for the pre-selection in that extremely safe seat. And he seemed to charm his way into it, and yet his public persona is of the greyest of men. He's also he's also a moderate, which doesn't help. And that's Simon Birmingham. He's in the Senate, but he's also a moderate, so he's yes. he's out of contention. I mean, I actually think on paper Susan Lee is a lot better than people realise, but in practice, a lot of her colleagues make the point to me that she's a bit of a loose cannon. Uh, she's also got a bit of baggage that she has would have to overcome as well. She has baggage. And she's in her early 60s now as well, which shouldn't be a barrier. But, you know, given that Anthony Albanese at 59 years of age was the oldest opposition leader in Australian political history 
to, to win his way into government from opposition to become prime minister, if you can believe that. You know, something would have to change on that front for her to become a contender in the years to come as well. So, I mean, Dutton is unpopular, but there's no one else. No, he's safe. And and we, we need to say this. If Josh Frydenberg, here's a catch-22 for you. If Josh Frydenberg can win his way into government at the next election, this is his catch and, and get and reclaim Kuyong, for example. Or back into parliament, yeah. Back into parliament somehow, yeah. For him to do that, he only does it because he wants to become Liberal leader, let's be honest. But Peter Dutton is a barrier to that. Peter Dutton's mere presence as an unpopular figure, particularly in Victoria, could be the barrier to Frydenberg even winning the seat back. But here's the catch-22. If Frydenberg does win the seat back, it will only be because Peter Dutton has elevated and done better than expected. In which case, why would you turn to a returning Josh Frydenberg to become Liberal leader if Peter Dutton has done well enough for the likes of Josh to win his seat back in Kuyong. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the one narrow path for Josh Frydenberg would be to win Kuyong. It's self-difficult because, of course, it's gone to the teals. But if he wins that back, and as you say, does it because there is a swing back towards the Liberal Party, or at least perhaps against teals, and then in the subsequent three years, Dutton is plainly not performing sufficiently, and so... Takes him out eventually with the non-leadership clause. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, yeah, look, put it this way, you'd rather have the problems of the Labour Party right now than the than the Liberal Party. Yeah. But look, I, I want to look back at the last election because this Australian electoral study has just come out. It's a brilliant document. I love this thing. It's been going since 1987. I know you've been involved with it in the past. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a second. Welcome back. This is uh, episode 139 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Remington, and with me is the professor, Peter Van Onselen. And in your academic life, Peter, you've been involved in the past with this Australian electoral study, which has been around since 1987, which is the biggest data set that studies voter behaviour in the immediate aftermath from an election. And it has, in recent days, given its uh, verdict of the 2022 election. I think it's a fascinating read because it's had to take into account a lot of changing landscape, particularly the rise of independence, the changing behavior of the female vote in Australia. What stands out to you out of this? Well, there's, look, there's quite a number of things. The, the, the biggest standout to me is ultimately, and we'll, we'll pick through this, no doubt, but ultimately when you look at the, the, the nature of who voted in which way based on this survey, the Liberal Party is waning, would be the way to put it. Its traditional strength has been baby boomers and older Australians, uh, even in the generation above that, which are both dying off, particularly in the generation above the baby boomers, but are also no longer the voting cohort that they once were as they get older and therefore lose their numbers uh, relative to other generational cohorts. So they've faced a bit of a decline amongst the baby boomers even, but it's more that the baby boomers have declined as a percentage of the overall generational populace, voting populace. And the Liberal Party are not substituting that decline in baby boomer prominence with uh, younger generations voting for them. Far, far from it. Now, this is a bipartisan problem. So in a sense, the two-party system is challenged by younger voters who are not as aligned and are willing to look elsewhere. But it is a bigger problem, a much bigger problem for the Liberal Party than it is for the Labor Party which poses all sorts of challenges for them going forward. 
And that's before we get to the other one, uh, which has happened before, but was stronger at this election than before, which is the gender divide, particularly with women being turned off the Liberal Party. We knew that was going to happen with some of the issues in the last parliament. Before we get on to women, because the women issue is fascinating, the gender issue, actually, because there's an issue there with the male vote. Mm. But with the ageing element of it, traditionally, the coalition seats have said, look, you know, yes, people get older, they tend to come to us. And then Julie Gillard famously made a comment about that, don't do anything for pensioners because they'll vote against you anyway. And then they die off because that's the nature of the natural cycle. But it doesn't matter because the next load have were previously young are getting older, and then they swing from left of centre parties towards the right. So, which they're not doing the way they once did, which is fascinating. But they're not doing it, and that's the thing which is interesting that the signs are that is this a millennial generation, well, they're not yet old, but the younger baby boomers, I suppose, are tending to stay more progressive than they were in the past. That itself is interesting. Well, and, and there's two factors that in the years to come might make this even more interesting. I mean, firstly, we should say, I think baby boomers ageing are socially progressive in a way that previous generations hadn't been to the same extent. And so because the Liberal Party is still clinging to various conservative positions, and even if the conservatives don't dominate the party, they certainly dominate it vocally. So that's its own challenge for baby boomers to even think about voting for the for the right of politics in the way that older Australians have traditionally done. But the other two factors that I think are really interesting, one is what are called post-material voting tendencies, which have become more material in their relevance. I'm thinking of the environment, I'm thinking of climate change in particular. That was something that Ronald Inglehart, an academic, would have always described as a post-materialist voting tendency. You vote that way when you can afford to. Right? And baby boomers have been relatively wealthy as a generational cohort uh, for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, and as a result, uh, that they, they can vote on that post-materialist tendency. Now, it's not as post-materialist as it once was because we, we know the economic consequences of climate change, but it is still a strong value for baby boomers. Now, the big question mark is, does that stick as they get older or do they shift as they get older, as they see labour perhaps eat into some of their benefits in retirement that they become self-absorbed at wanting to understandably hold on to. But equally, Hugh, and this is the, the second part to it, which I think is really interesting, there's no guarantee that whatever frustrations they have generationally as they get older that might traditionally have aligned them in an economic sense to the Liberal Party will do so now because the Liberal Party aren't the economic party they once were. They claim to be the better economic managers, but there's little evidence of it in the way that they structure their policies and their reform credentials and all the rest of it. So even if baby boomers can put to one side that they're socially progressive and conservatives aren't, which I'm not sure they can, and even if they move on from the traditionally so-called post-materialist voting tendencies, which the Liberals are not doing enough on, such as climate change, which I'm not sure that they will move on from that, but even if they can do those two things, there's no guarantee that when they just purely think from a self-interested perspective, as well as look at the economic situation, that they'll say that the Liberal Party is the answer because it hasn't been that answer for a very long time. Yes, they've uh, lost their way somewhere in that. The other thing which I think is fascinating, so much is made about the coalition parties, the Liberal Party's difficulty with women. Mm. And the statistic given out and confirmed by this electoral study is that only 32% of women gave their per first preference vote to the coalition parties, 32%. Now, only 32% of men gave their first preference vote for the Labour Party. We don't talk about a male problem for the Labour Party. 
We talk a lot about a female problem for the coalition parties, for the Liberal Party in particular. Why is that? Why is the women's vote more important than the men's vote being essentially low on the Labour side? I have an answer, but I want to hear your answer. Just on the the reason that the women's vote is so low for the Liberal Party is, is sort of patently obvious, right? I mean, to, to all of us. The interesting thing for me is that that used to be exactly the opposite. I mean, the, the foundation principles of the Liberal Party were that it stood up to the very male-dominated trade union movement and the Labor Party, the Workers' Party. And for many, many years, women traditionally voted more overwhelmingly liberal than Labor before that has flipped more recently and flipped starkly in this last election as a gender divide. I'm not sure that it necessarily is more relevant that you know women, if you like, are deserting the Liberal Party versus men deserting the Labor Party. But in the current climate, the reason I think it is, is because it caused a war on two fronts for the Liberal Party. The Labor Party was able to work around its men's problem to still pick up sufficient seats to, to cobble together a minority government, a majority government, a bare majority government, whereas the Liberal Party was not able to deal with its women's problem and avoid a war on two fronts and retain safe seats. In fact, it lost a number of them because of its gender problem to teals, to, to female teal candidates. So I, I think it can be swings and roundabouts from one election to the next, that Labor has a problem with men seemingly and the Liberals have a problem with women. But I believe that was the reason that this election in particular saw the women's problem of the Liberal Party as the more profound problem versus Labor's problem with men. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that, just looking through these numbers, that the, the women's vote, when it goes away from the Liberal Party, the coalition votes, it tends to then go to the progressive side of politics and park itself there. That's a problem for the Liberal Party. The men's vote, which is low for the Labour Party, goes away to a variety of other parties, including more progressive parties, Greens and so on, also to Teals and so on, but also to One Nation and, and some of those other independent groupings. But they tend to come back, at least in part, back through preferences back to the Labour Party. So I think that's why it matters more. The women's vote drifting is more dangerous to the Liberal Party than the men vote drifting is to the Labour Party. Yeah, my, my sense of that, for what it's worth, is that I don't know that I draw a, an enormous gender distinction on that front. I, I actually just think that Labor is better at getting back second and third and fourth preferences mm. than the coalition is, whether it's men or women. You know, I just think it's it's one of those things where Labor has had a longer period of time to get used to a low primary vote because of the rise and rise of the Greens, and even to some extent the Australian Democrats before that, because whilst they might have started with Don Chip, they very quickly took votes more from the, the left than the right uh, as the years rolled on, but certainly the Greens in particular. So Labor's had longer to get used to a low primary vote and working on preference flows. The Liberal Party have never been as good at that uh, and haven't had to be as adroit at it. And right-wing parties that sort of come and go that steal Liberal preferences, sure, they largely go back to the Liberal Party rather than Labor. But often you actually see tactical decision-making by some of those right-wing parties where they choose to preference against the Liberal Party to sort of send them a message to accentuate the significance of the protest vote. The Greens don't sort of dabble in that dark arts. You know, they, they don't want their voters to think that they're willing to elect a Liberal rather than a Labor, you know, if you vote Green. They want people to know that it's a protest vote. You might get a Green happy days if you do. But if you don't, don't worry, you're not jeopardising a Labor government either in preference flows 
or in who we would support in minority government. So I think that's a factor too. Interesting. So the other detail that came out regarding the Teals is that uh, only 18% of votes for Teal candidates came from people who at the previous election had voted for the coalition. So more than 70% of the people who were voting for the Teals uh, were coming from Labor and the Greens voting tactically to put someone up. So that 18% is the key, of course, because that made the difference to get them across the line. But there's also a little bit of a promise there, a little bit of hope for the opposition, for the Dutton-led opposition, in that looking at the Teal successes and, and the broad sort of independence that got up and took those traditionally Liberal Party seats, they, on average, there are a couple of exceptions. You look at Zali Stegel had over a 10% swing in the end, but on average, they're about 2 to 3% margins, just over 4% for Allegra Spender and Wentworth, but most of them are about that 2, 2%, some under 2%. So really, you only need to get one in six of those coalition voters who turned to a Teal last time back again and the Liberal Party starts to collect those seats back into their own, uh, their own camp. Yeah. The danger is, is that they've got incumbency now and their names are better known. But there is, it does show that potential vulnerability for some of those teals if for they do anything that offends that local population and if they perhaps get too progressive, that some of those votes may be lost to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing about this for my weekend column in the Oz, so, you know. Go buy a copy if you're listening, if you're interested enough to get more info. But it, I, I, I think that is a really interesting phenomenon, and it speaks to how good a campaign machine Labor can be, right? Because they deliberately depressed their vote in those seats to ensure that the Teal candidates leapfrogged the Labor Party and therefore got all the Labor preferences. Because if the Teal comes third and their preferences disperse, it, it essentially delivers the seat to the Liberal Party because that cohort of 18% are not likely to be preferencing Labor. They're all going to go back to the Libs and get them comfortably over the line. But Labor's long been quite good at doing that. And that was a huge feature, which is why it's also important to realise that these Teal candidates, whilst they are holding traditionally safe Liberal seats, they've got a real juggling act because most of their voting cohort are Labor left, but they need to somehow not lose them so that they fall behind Labor in a future election potentially and come third. But they also need to make sure that they somehow hold on to these Liberals who have shifted, which can be hard to do. We saw in the Victorian election, they didn't pick up one of the four seats, any of the four seats that they hoped to. I don't think, we talked about this previously, I don't think that spells the death of the Teals far from it. I think New South Wales will be a better marker to see how the Teals are likely to fare next time federally. And that's even before you include all those incumbency advantages, Hugh, that you, that you mentioned. But interestingly, in some of the seats in Victoria, in the end, the Teals actually fell behind Labor in at least one of those safe seats with Pizzuto coming back for the Liberals. The, you know, the, the Teals were running around on the night claiming victory, as well as running around in the lead up to the night saying, this is a, a lay down Mazaire seat for us. In the end, they weren't even the second losing candidate in the two-party contest because Labor got over the top of them. So there's a lot of complexity in the way that the vote structure goes. And Q, when you talk about only needing to grab, you know, sort of one out of three of the traditional Liberal voters who vote... One out of six. Sorry, one out of six uh, who vote uh, to get that 3%, you know, to get them over the line, even if it's two out of six, right? You know, a female candidate who's vocal, you know, look at Bridget Archer, for God's sakes. Now, she wasn't up against a teal, 
But I tell you what, firstly, the reason she wasn't up against the Teal is because of what she stood for. So why would the Teals even try? But there is no doubt that her willingness to stand up against her own party on some things helps. They could do a lot worse, the Liberal Party, than finding women for these seats who are progressive, who are outspoken, who don't just shut up, right? That would help. Now, whether that works under a Peter Dutton leadership, however, that remains to be seen. You know, who's the lesser of evils? Scott Morrison at the 2022 election, who was political poison in these teal seats, or Peter Dutton at a 2024 or 2025 election in these sort of seats? Who knows? It's, it's going to be an interesting contest. Yes, you won't be seen as a massive improvement, I don't think, but although maybe some might see it as some improvement. While we're on the last election, we're nearly out of time. But um, you'll recall, I think many people recall, and many people were intensely critical of the media for making much fuss of the failure to remember by Anthony Albanese at the very start of the campaign, the cash rate. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know what the unemployment rate was either. And he stumbled around that and looked a bit gormless. And that was replayed on the TV news. And it still is held up on Twitter and elsewhere as proof of the essentially perfidy of mainstream media to make so much of this error by Albanese and just shows that the mainstream media had it in for Albanese and we're all doing the work of the Morrison government and the coalition because that's what the mainstream media does. There's a fascinating uh, new quarterly essay from uh, Catherine Murphy called Lone Wolf, Albanese and the New Politics, which gives what I think for the first time a really good insight to how that event was read within the Labour campaign. And in it, it quotes, I'm going to quote you here, a number falling right out of his head on day two of the contest jolted Albanese and it jolted the campaign. Catherine Murphy then quotes Penny Wong saying, you either step up or we are all dead. So however it might be perceived as being the mean-spiritedness of the media to have pointed out that he had failed these fundamental economic numbers, the cash rate and the unemployment rate for a, you know, a, a man who wants to be a Labour prime minister, that from Penny Wong tells you how it was read from the inside. Penny Wong, there is no one closer other than possibly Mark Butler to Anthony Albanese within politics than Penny Wong, you either step up or we are all dead. And he did step up and he sharpened up after that. So just on, on indulgence, because in our book, Victory, we go into that as well. I don't have a quote from Penny Wong. We did talk to her, but not, not about that. But very similarly, Jim Chalmers told us that like a boxer who gets a bloody nose in the first round, that's what happened to Albo. But importantly, he didn't go down for the count. He fought on and the bloody, the taste of blood, I think is the term Chalmers used helped him to make sure that he didn't, you know, cop more punches going forward. I'm, I've, I've completely butchered what his quote to us was. It was much more eloquent. But, I, but it's the same vein, right? The internals of it were fascinating. Even right down to Albanese getting in the car in the aftermath of it, he got on the phone to his chief of staff, Kim Gartrell. He had his media team with him. And his inclination, and the phone was ringing, one of whom was Penny Wong, I believe. So that was probably where she said that to him. But he, he straight away said, I have to own this because I don't want to be accused of being like Scott Morrison and not owning my mistakes. But I think you're right. I think you know Penny Wong's observation that they were dead if he didn't you know, recover from it were right. And, and I, I should add this, the federal liberal director made the point for us when we were asking him about its significance. He made the point that they needed another one of those before it cut through. Such was the situation for the coalition. 
you know, often if a, an election is tight and could go either way, one stumble like that can be enough to kill an opposition leader off. But they felt that Scott Morrison was so far behind and, and there were all the problems that they faced. The one jolted Labor, but they needed a second one for voters to sit up and go, hang on a second. This guy's in comp. There's a bit of a problem here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, okay, I, I, I think the, the naysayers on, I know we're out of time, Hugh, but those on social media who run around saying, oh, the media this, the media that, that was not a gotcha moment. That was a massive stuff up by Anthony Albanese. I do think there were gotcha moments after that, though. I think that there were those on the media trail, no need to name names, but I think there were people on the trail who started to make mountains out of molehills because of that mountain of a stuff up on day one. Yes, and I think it more or less ended when Adam Bant at the National Press Club, when he was asked something about that, just <laughs> yes. called it all in, you know, and people started saying, well, what, you know, what's the next thing as the... Uh, can you give us pie to the 18th digit or whatever the hell? I thought the NDIS one, what are your six points on the NDIS? If he was standing there selling his NDIS policy and then stopped, took questions and couldn't tell you what the six points were, fair enough. That's not a gotcha question. That's poor planning. But he was there for a different topic and then got this out of the blue question about what are the six points to your NDIS policy. Mm. It, like, you know, if I said to you right now, what are the six um, ethical values at, at Network 10. You probably would know, Hugh. I wouldn't have a bloody clue, right? I'd have to go and read it. But if I'd just done a press conference talking about the importance of ethics and values at the network, I tell you what, I'd want to be armed with them then and there. But to just get a question without notice out of nowhere, you know, it's it's that that is a gotcha moment. Yeah. Look, uh, we're out of time. Entertaining as always. <laughs> the next Professor and the Hack will be available both as a podcast, but also as a vodcast. You'll be able to see uh, particularly good-looking faces coming out in the next week as we wrap up the year. I'll make sure I put a shirt on for that one, Hugh. I won't, uh, I won't sit here like I do. Yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> <laughs> I have the benefit of a camera, so I can see you there in your, uh, your funky-looking T-shirt. So we're going to look at the three winners, the three losers, as we perceive it. There's some variation in our, in our lists. That'll be in our next Professor in the Hack. Till then. See you, mate. Take care. been listening to the professor and the hack a network 10 podcast to make sure you don't miss any episodes subscribe in your favorite podcast app thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs>